Uh, I want to now leave the section on Lojong in the text and move to the section of the six parameters. So this is uh, the six parameters is a very common teaching within the Mahayana tradition. It is the practice of the Bodhisattvas. And they are also called the far-reaching attitudes. And they are, I mentioned them before, they are generosity, ethics, patience, joy, meditation, and wisdom. So what makes the parameters what makes, for example, the, the practice of patience? Well, let's start with generosity. So what, what makes the practice of generosity a parameter, a far-reaching attitude, is our understanding of emptiness. Yeah? So there is a kind of common generosity, which is, yeah, I'm, I, I'm this, generous person, look, and I give something real, and that belongs to me, I give that to the other person, which is separate. Yeah. And I feel good about that. And probably I want to have something back. Yeah. So it's like, there's strings attached, usually, in that kind of generosity. Yeah. It's like we... we we want to have yes, thank you, or we have certain agendas what this person should do with the gift. Why it is clearly like a business transaction clothed in the code of generosity. And that's generosity, and it's a good thing, but it's not the parameter of generosity. So the parameter of generosity is realizing there's nobody giving, and there's nothing which you give, and there's also no recipient of the gift. When I say no, I don't, I don't say it doesn't exist. What I mean is there's no independent, solid, separate I here, which could give an independent, solid, separate gift to independent, solid, separate other. Yeah. So the the passion the prajnaparamita of generosity is completely effortless. It, is, it has no agenda. It is like you taking care of your foot. And you're also not thinking, wow, I'm such a wonderful person. I cut my nails. Yeah. Look, I have to put it onto Instagram. What a donation I, I, I make. I'm cutting my... I'm, I'm taking care of my foot. Yeah. So it is just natural. It's what you do. Yeah? You look after yourself. Just the yourself, which you look after, is a little bit bigger than this meat sack. Yeah? It's a bit bigger. It doesn't stop with the skin. Yeah? So there is, no, uh, there is no agenda and there is also no like puffed up pride or feeling good about yourself. It's, it's not worth mentioning. That kind of generosity is not worth mentioning because it's the most natural thing to do. You put food into this mouth and you don't, you don't make a big, a big story out of it. 
Ja? So the uh, Prajna parameter of patience, that, that's uh, what we covered in our, in, in, uh, in our last meeting two, two weeks ago, or when that was. That's uh, first 27. Uh, yeah, patience. Yeah. Uh, first 27. A Bodhisattva, for Bodhisattvas who want to be rich in virtue, So this is a bit strange language, who want to be rich in virtue, yeah? So it sounds like who want to be a goody-goody girl or something like that, you know? Uh, so good, good in virtue is uh, uh, who want to be uh, full of vitality and joy and meaning and power and courage, yeah? So that's what virtue means, vitality. Yeah? Constructive vitality. It's a spiritual energy which emerges when you align yourself with your deepest values, with your deepest, with your deepest yearnings, with your deepest longings. Yeah? That is to be rich in virtue. So for people like that, a person who hurts you is a precious treasure. Yeah. So that again is the Lojong teaching. Yeah. It's a precious treasure. A person who hurts you is a precious treasure. This is really useful. And um, because our life is full of assholes. At least my my life. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you don't you don't have that karma. <laughs> it's just one damn asshole, narrow-minded fascists after another. Yeah, it's amazing. So, uh, a person who hurts you is a precious treasure. And uh, so that's of course initially that is a kind of a rational. Sentence you might say, yeah. Um, so then there needs to be a bit more flesh to that, to this. So not only to say in the sentence, but how how do we actually start to see people like that, yeah? Particularly someone who hurts hurts us, yeah. And uh, you know, before uh, Tom Rizampu gives this example, and one of the examples is. Uh, so you, uh, even, you know, someone you have served and you have done so much for, like a, like your children or someone you mentored, yeah? So you, you really gave that person a lot and then they turn against you and they not even say thank you, yeah? So that is a good example how that kind of giving then as a mentor or as a parent came with agenda, yeah? Like with some expectations. After all I have done for you, now this. Now you don't study Europe but med medicine. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> so that's, uh, I mean, imagine we could do that uh, to um, to really give, 
without wanting to have something back. And then if that person hurts us and even turns against us, harms us, uh, to, uh, to respond not with hatred and anger and disappointment and so it's it's a high uh, it's it's a high vision. So then he says, cultivate patience for everyone, without irritation or resentment. This is the practice of a bodhisattva. Without irritation and resentment. So now, obviously, we can't stop irritation and resentment. They are too quick. Yeah. So this, uh, this teaching is a bit, uh, it can be easily misunderstood, and it is often misunderstood. Uh, and if this is misunderstood, what it leads to fake, it leads to pretense, it leads, leads to an un, being, un, uh, being dishonest with yourself. It's like this pretend, pretending Buddhist smile. Yeah? inside boiling, maybe so deep inside that you not even can feel it, and then pretending you are above irritation and annoyment, and you're above of being disappointed that you didn't hear thank you. Yeah. So uh, it is not about having these responses, but to become aware of them, to step out of them, to not put them onto the driver's seat. Yes, you are disappointed and you are allowed to have that feeling and you are able to feel that feeling, but it does not need to make you harm back yeah? because it comes and goes. It does not need to drive the car, yeah? the irritation and resentment. And, and that capacity of relying on stillness, of on silence, that is patience. Yeah. In Shantideva, he, um, which is also a text on the six parameters, Shantideva distinguished three types of patience. And the first one is uh, a tolerance towards discomfort. Uh, and this is something really precious to cultivate for us as human beings. Uh, a tolerance towards discomfort. And in our culture, we, 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 we are not really supported in, uh, in cultivating this capacity. Yeah? So we, we, we kind of, we feel we deserve, we are entitled to not have pain, to not have grief to not have anxiety. Yeah. So there is this immediately we take a pill or we distract ourselves or we use drugs or entertainment to disconnect from uh, a discomfort. And that's not even, I mean, not even big things, even small things, like just a little boredom, a little restlessness, some dissatisfaction, some ache in your body. And in our princess of the pea mind, <laughs> I don't know if you know that, that fairy tale, uh, the princess of the pea, 
princess, we are all princesses on a pea, yeah, like ten mattresses and there's a little pea and she can't sleep. Uh, that, uh, that and then you know and then when things become even more difficult in old old age sickness and death we can't handle it at all so um, and it makes us so unhappy you know like to a toothache it's like it's it, it's like the most horrible thing in the world yeah. um, and uh, meditation practice is uh, is a good place, yeah. And there's actually a certain meditation schools who uh, who really work with discomfort. Like if you go into some Thai forest monastery somewhere in the jungle, you know, they consciously sit on concrete floors without uh, without cushion, yeah. And they leave, and they don't have mosquito nets in front of their window. Um, and and it's not uh, so. This is not like this Christian idea of you know uh, hurting yourself as some uh, as some purification practice. And it's also not training uh, endurance. So it's not like biting the teeth and getting through it. Uh, but it's when there's some pressure and we don't have much choice then the only way out is the way, the way through into the silence. And then when you, when, you, when you find that, then you start to experience, wow, I can, I can handle the discomfort of being a human. Yeah? And that's incredible empower. It's incredible empowerment in that. Yeah? So we definitely can work on our capacity to be more spacious and relaxed with discomfort. And we can start with little things. Yeah? And meditation, I mean, everyone who has ever done a meditation retreat or um, some, some longer meditation sessions knows that it's always topic. Yeah? It's always a part of the, um, part of the practice. So obviously that does not mean if we can do something about uh, physical discomfort or pain, uh, of course, you take painkillers and things like that. So there's enough, uh, or medication, there's enough things uh, which are, which we have to work with, which we can't do anything about. Yeah? I can also understand a particular young men who are called to that kind of a bit uh, serious practice of consciously going into retreats where they sit for hours without moving on the concrete floor. So it's but it's not what I would generally recommend to Swedish people. <laughs> it's just, so, uh, so there's more gentle ways, yeah, uh, and. Uh, if there's a painkiller and you have toothache, or yeah, of course, then, then you take the painkiller unless you want to take the opportunity to play a bit with it. It can be also like, okay, let's see, for one hour I will just sit with the pain and then I will do something. That's also a possibility. But even if you take, if you have a, a tooth, tooth, toothache, I just had 
that's why it comes up. Last week I had an infection, I think it was. And there was an afternoon where I couldn't do anything uh, than sitting with it. I was just sitting for three hours uh, with this thing. It was amazing. Uh, so one can do that. Uh, but even if you take medication, and after three hours I did, uh, then still there was an ache, you know, it was not finished. So then I had to do some patient's work anyway. Yeah? So a lot of also emotional uh, painkillers, let's just say, they usually just take the edge off. Yeah? And, and, and that's fine. But, but they often don't really uh, remove uh, the discomfort. Yeah? They just take the edge off. So there's still uh, material for, uh, for increasing patients. So the second uh, kind of patients is, yeah, you need to un unmute yourself. Yes. Oh, hello. Hi. Uh, Thank hello. you uh, for today and everything. Um, I just wanted to do also, um, because it's just that uh, with the, um, to find the balance, because uh, the Buddha says, you know, finding the middle way, you know, not to go into the extreme of, mm. um, you know, and uh, it's interesting this in uh, relation to, you know, how far you should push, push yourself, endure, enduring, and, uh, mm. you know, also not, not yeah. going into the lazy aspect. And <laughs> yeah, that's always an interesting question, and it's different for different people, but first, I'm not talking about pushing yourself and, and uh, enduring. Yeah? So this is something else. So it's, uh, it's uh, relaxing, it's, uh, it's opening. Yeah? And partly this practice is also based on the insight that our suffering becomes from resist comes from resistance. So if there's more patience, like this also I experienced with the toothache. You know, there were moments where I could really let go and, uh, and the, the energy of the pain was still there, but it was not pain anymore. It was, there was no suffering. There was just energy. Yeah. And that's when you release the, the, uh, the, the resistance. But you are right. Uh, in, uh, in the Buddhist teachings, in general, we avoid extremes. Yeah? And what happens if you push too much, you make it worse. So you might um, be able to sit on the pain a little longer but you actually make it worse because you're sitting with resistance. Yeah? So, and, and that capacity is different for different people. So it's very difficult to judge. And it's a good guideline in general to always have a mind uh, that in Buddhism we avoid the extremes. That it is a part of gentleness, a part of the heart. And... Uh, and that can change within our life, and it's very different from person to person. I mean, for some people, they can't 
you know, for some people it's difficult to be in a hot room. Yeah? For some people it's difficult to be in a cold room. And uh, so, and then one can work a little on the edge, yeah? but there's also the it is also necessary not to exhaust yourself and harm yourself. There is people who harm themselves through these kind of practices. There's even stories about meditators who broke their bones in the meditation posture. Or, you know, all these yoga practitioners who you know, have slipped uh, um, bags and, and so on. So there is, uh, there is that uh, danger of harming ourselves with spiritual practice. And, that's, and that person who is able to do that actually needs to learn the other direction, yeah? to be more gentle, to be more kind, to be more soft. So the second uh, uh, patience, uh, and that's what uh, Tom Misampo here is talking about, is the patience towards people. Tolerance towards people, yeah. and there's uh, you know, many different reflections and things one can can do uh, to open that space. For example, uh, I started yesterday and this morning with this little reflection that we are all human beings and that we all suffer, and that there's a space where we can meet. Uh, you know, seeing that people who are hurting us, that they are in pain and that they are suffering themselves and that they will experience the consequences of their behavior. So there's many different reflections and angles uh, on how we can uh, respond to a harmful act without making the person into a bad, evil person, without making this cognitive fusion between a harmful act and the person. And with that collapsing the complexity of everyone into this projection, enemy, and then communicating with that projection. And that projection is completely covering up the complexity of that person. So we respond, we attack and judge our own projection and we don't see that that person has Buddha nature, that person has been my mother in previous lives and so on. So different angles on that. So that does not mean that we condone harmful behavior, obviously not. There is harmful, shitty, evil behavior in this world. And we should do something about it, also with force. But the per people who do violence, um, who, do, uh, who do harm us and others, they are not evil. Yeah? They are hurting. And most of the time, maybe always, they actually just pass on their pa the pain they have received, like, like we do. So that's also part of the tolerance towards other people is increasing the tolerance to yourself. Yeah? Being in tune with your shadow. Yeah? So being in contact with your Buddha nature, but also being in contact that you can be also an asshole. 
Yeah? And that when resources are scarce, scare in Sweden, I wonder what happens with the decency of all the Swedish people. Then the Vikings come out. And the, they are also there. They are also there. It's in me. So when people say to me, like with this kind of, a bit like, I'm so good, self-righteous, oh, I can't understand how anyone can act like this. That, that's just a lack of insight into the dimension and complexity of your own being. Of course you know how someone can rape another person. Of course you know how someone can torture another person. We're doing it ourselves in our little sneaky ways. Yeah. So in this kind of uh, reflections, uh, they then help us to fill this sentence of uh, being tolerant to people you know, with, uh, with presence. Uh, so it's not enough to just say this, this sentence, oh, this person is a treasure. And part of that, re that reflection is also to realize and to see that it is actually the difficult people which are an important part of our development. Yeah? Like your children, for example, particularly when they are teenagers. Yeah? Or your husband. Now it's it's those those people who crawl under our skin, which are difficult to be with. Uh, they are uh, for the bodhisattva practitioner, for the bodhisattva baby. That's the place to practice, uh, and they bring out these buttons. Yeah, without them, you wouldn't be aware of those. You know, uh, yesterday I talked about you know my mother. You know, when I came here the last two years, every two weeks I came for four or five days and I stayed here and I thought, wow, this is amazing. I'm so cool. Finally, I have some, some results of my practice. Yeah. Here's the proof. I, I lost that arrogance. Wow, again. Yeah. And it was only possible because uh, I spent longer time with her. Yes. So, yeah, I was just uh, wondering because in the 37 verses, um, there's a, this uh, verse that says something that you shouldn't uh, have engaged with wrong company or <laughs> something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I don't remember exactly the yes. verse, but on the other hand, it seems like this is also the practice of a bodhisattva. Mm. If you can endure living or working with this. Mm. So, I find that's kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you can see there's sometimes slightly contradictory direction <laughs> in the teachings always, like different medicine for different kind of people in different periods of our life. But here, wrong company would be people who seduce you uh, to waste time and you start to ad adapt and fall back in patterns and behaviors and feelings which you actually want to grow, uh, grow out of. But of course, as a bodhisattva, you wouldn't want to abandon them. Yeah. So the bodhisattva's journey is a journey of uh, maybe temporarily removing yourself from these kind of situations and these kind of friends uh, in order to return to these places so that you can 
serve, that you can, you know, be there with them. So it's not like abandoning is not really the right word, uh, but it's... Um, so let's say my mother would be someone I would be around and then I would find myself to drink more and smoke more and play computer games and uh, talk uh, uh, and talk uh, politics, uh, right-wing racist politics, then probably it would be good to keep a, a, um, a respectful distance to her in order to come back. So sometimes this, uh, uh, well, quite often this verses they we can't see them literal, literally, and often they are a bit too extreme to make a point, and and then and then we hear a paradoxical thing like now, and then that helps us to again to find the middle way. Just said the middle way. Okay. So I just want to mention the last kind of patience, uh, and that is the patience which comes from understanding and seeing the complexity of situations. And that is the complexity of situation here. That's the teachings on karma, yeah? and in the in the in the relationship for a difficult to a difficult person, that would be this. This teaching that you know the outside world is a reflection of the inside world, and meeting a difficult person is actually an opportunity for you uh, to heal or to purify uh, certain habits. Uh, you know, uh, so seeing the complexity of situations that everything is dependent on each other, uh, also complexity of people. Yeah. So as I said before. Uh, a person who acts harmfully is not an evil person, so you see the complexity of the situation. And part of that complexity is understanding the connection with your own karma. So I would like to start with a short reflection uh, connecting with common humanity, like uh, looking through the veil of outside appearances. So this is um, this this kind of patience is sometimes called uh, equanimity. There's different meanings of equanimity in the in in meditation, but here it is a sense of kinship with other people. So deconstructing these categories of strangers, friend, and enemy, kind of look through deconstructing these projections and, con and finding a place of uh, connectedness uh, deeper than our projections. Uh, so we have this tendency uh, to feel a sense of separation or a sense of judgment towards people of a cer certain gender or lifestyle or age or, or race or language. Yeah? So, uh, so that, that that leads to uh, often feel oh no I can't I can't relate to that kind of person they they are they are strangers um, and uh, just very shortly and uh, I would like you to look at the screen and to kind of look at the people here so we will use our, ourselves as example yeah 
and uh, also include yourself. Yeah. Um, you, because you're also a human being with feelings. Yeah. And it is of of course necessary to have the tender the tenderness or the uh, the the compassionate, the loving gaze, not only towards other people, but it starts with yourself. And I already mentioned uh, some of the points, so it's nothing new. I just want to take the opportunity again to shift again into a connectedness between us and then also broadening that uh, to others. Yeah? So if you if you look around, and then I will just uh, say a few things uh, around uh, that kind of recognition. And the first is, uh, we are human beings and we have feelings. Yeah? So uh, everyone of us, and we all know laughter and joy and love, but we also know fear and sadness distress, despair. Yeah, so you, you kind of you feel inside of you and then you recognize, wow, but these, these people, they, they are the same. They are just the same. They, they know. They know these kind of experiences. Then uh, you, the people you see here, they all have been hurt. So they, in their past, they, they experienced loss, but also they grew up in an environment uh, which didn't welcome them, actually, for uh, how, how they deserve to be welcomed, you know, to be loved for who they are and to be respected for who they are. So just like you, they, they were under pressure to, uh, to prove themselves and... Uh, so in all of us, there's a sense of I'm not good enough. I need to be more of this, more of that. I need to be more, 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 more humorous. I need to be more extrovert or introvert. Or yeah, I'm just not good enough. Something is wrong with me. Yeah, I'm not lovable as I am. So that's uh, that's uh, for everyone here. Yeah. At least I have not met one person yet uh, who was not suffering from that. And that's the same, and you know it from yourself, so you, you can see it in the faces of others. I mean, we are basically all, um, we all have cracks and, and wrinkles, and uh, yeah, in our body and our faces show uh, the hurt yeah. we have experienced, the disappointments with, with our life, with ourselves. Yeah, so. Uh, and our body and our face uh, shows it. We can't hide it, actually. That other people see it in you, and you see it in others. It's not a secret, actually. And then uh, everyone here really appreciates to be uh, treated kindly and to, to be looked at with kindness and with respect and it matters to those people in the same way it matters to you it's uh, it's a longing in all of us to to belong to be seen who we are uh, we all want to be just ourselves 
and uh, and we hold back. You know? So we all hold back. Also, we we are afraid to show our vulnerability. We are we are afraid to show our feelings, and 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 you know, so we are all more or less in a bit of a straitjacket of you know, trying to hold back, not not engaging. You know, best would be like the passive observer of everything. Uh, because the, because if people would find out who we are, and, and they would reject us, so better hiding, not showing. Yeah. Yeah. And then that specific Swedish problem of who do you think you are? You know, don't stick out. You know, uh, don't shine. Um, so. It's also quite common in, in in Germany, but it's not a national law in Germany. So it's it's still a bit appreciated, uh, more appreciated to shine in in Germany, to stick out. Um, then uh, we all experience uh, the, uh, the old old age, sickness, and death. Yeah? So we are we are all. We are uh, in different stages here in this group, yeah. Uh, but uh, we all we all will lose our hair and teeth and nice skin and uh, you know, lose our fitness muscles. Uh, it's, it's going down. You can do yoga forever. It's going down. There's nothing to stop that. Yeah? And then. Uh, we all will die, yeah. So that's also we all will die. So and someone will be the first one. Someone of us will be the first. We don't know who, but it's going to happen quite soon. You know? Life is short. It, it's it's quick. I mean, I'm 55 now. I'm far over the mountain. You know, it's it's going down into the into the valley of death. Yeah? The, the biggest part of my life is finished. You know, there's not much more coming. I mean, I'm not. I don't need to think anymore about what what will I do when I'm when I grow up when I'm grown up. You know, <laughs> like maybe becoming studying medicine or something like that. You know, it's it's finished. It's done. This is it. There will be a bit more of the same music coming out of this mouth, but basically, there's nothing more. Yeah, and it's like this for all of us at one point. Yeah. And, and this is a—it's actually a big insight, you know, to realize that all the people you meet and you 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 are angry about and you struggle with—they are almost dead, you know. So, is it worth it to hold grudges and? Uh, keep uh, keep forgiveness away, or so is it, is it really worth it with someone who is almost dead and who will die? Our lives are very precious and fragile, and then there's also the this that we are all unique, yeah. So. Well, these people, and also including you, there was never a flower like that. 
and there will never be a flower like that. Never, ever. It's quite amazing that everyone is different. Same on one level and one on one level, but also at, at the other hand, completely unique. So they, it's worth to write a novel about everyone here. A big, a big novel. Because all of your lives are so amazing and and fascinating and rich and unique. Nobody, nobody ever ha has done the same journey uh, like you, and, and nobody ever will. Yeah. And then we all have. Buddha nature. So we all, within us, within our essence, we have this source of wisdom and light which wants to shine through, through all of us. Uh, and it's, it, it's probably the same light, you know, the same light which wants to shine through, through all of us. The same essence love which wants to shine through, through all of us. So that's part of this uh, uh, reflections, and they are words, you know. But so it's about reflecting in this direction, and then you know, open to open to that dimension of our connection. And if you do that, it's quite it can be quite overwhelming because suddenly you realize there are no strangers. And that enemies become friends, and enemies again, and friends become enemies. So the, it's it's the surface. Uh, one would do the, this kind of reflection every day for a few weeks, you know, and then go out into shops and uh, the way you relate to your customers, and suddenly you see them as people people with feelings. And then we can also include the animals. They are also people with feelings. Pigs and cows and dogs. With dogs it's more obvious for us, but maybe not so much with pigs and cows and chickens. They are also people wanting to be happy and avoiding suffering, just like us. So we can have this feeling, certainly for our dog, but we can also have, have it towards a chicken, a bird, an ant even. Which, which makes it difficult at one point to squash mosquitoes. So that's the reflection on equanimity, and I want to move to the next verse, 28.
listeners and solitary Buddhas working only for their own welfare. So this is uh, listeners and solitary Buddhas, so that's the Sutrayana or Shravakayana, where the aim of your practice is self-liberation. And it is probably part of our own practice, so that's why that's why it is being mentioned here. So to recognize this in us. So how much our spiritual practice is still about me. Yeah. Me feeling better. And probably for most of us that's the entry point into any kind of spiritual practice. Uh, so usually if we go to the yoga center or to a Buddhist meditation center, it's mainly about us wanting to feel better, you know, trying to find a, a different way to live with our stress and our burnout. So it, it, is, um, it is a step, you know, we, we, all, we all do. Yeah? And probably there's a lot of that still in us, yeah? that we are expecting our spiritual practice uh, to make us feel better, yeah? so it's it's nothing bad. It's it's a necessary step. But then in the Mayana tradition we open that. So, and then he in the second line he talks about the Bodhisattva. Practice as if, practice as if their heads were on fire. To help all beings, pour your energy into practice. It is the source of all abilities. This is the practice of a bodhisattvas. So practice as, as if your head is on fire. So I don't know how, the, how, how what does it uh, with you. <laughs> it's a bit in this category uh, in one of the first verses when he says practicing day and night. Yeah? So it's like this, uh, this um, it's a call to that passion, to that, to that joyful passion. Uh, so it's not like, it doesn't mean like being panic, yeah? So it's just a, a, it's a metaphor of that intensity. Yeah? It's a, it's a metaphor for the intensity in, in one's practice, for the passion. So that, uh, mm, that there's an undercurrent in your life, uh, a deep yearning to wake up. And so in the center of your life is, is that undercurrent. And it starts to pervade all your activities. So instead of practicing yoga for having a, a nice ass, you practice yoga because you want to be more healthy, more vital in your service to others. And you practice yoga because you want to uh, grow on the path of awakening. So then the same activity becomes something completely different when you uh, when you pour, uh, when you pour your energy into practice, and here practice, as I said before, does not mean formal practice. So that's a little part, yeah. Uh, 
which is sometimes completely overrated by some people. They feel they practice because they have an hour morning meditation. But that's actually not the important thing. The important thing is how, how do you treat your partner? Yeah. How much of your so wonderful morning prayers actually uh, change you, actually transform you, actually heal you? Yeah. And sometimes the daily practice can be helpful, but often it is actually more an obstacle. I see that very often, you know, people practicing and practicing for years and years and nothing changes. They, they stay the same tight, stressed, judgmental people. Yeah? So obviously it's, it's helpful to have a daily practice, uh, but it's not that important. Yeah? So like this meditation we just did, you don't need to do it in the morning in a formal practice. You can do it in the train. You know, it's much more important, actually, that it surfaces uh, in our daily life. So this is then also the question, how to turn daily life and things we do, we do anyway, how can we bring the Dharma there? Yeah? And unfortunately, you know, when I talk with people, often they don't value that enough. They kind of see, they say, wow, yeah, I can't really practice and I can't get a daily meditation practice. You know, and then I say, so what? How, do you, how are you at your work? How much of these uh, lojong verses surface while you're working? Yeah. How much awareness do you bring into your relationship? That, that's the more important question. As if you, uh, how many hours every day do you meditate or how much mantra do you say? So practice as if your heads were on fire. Obviously that needs to have a deep recognition of uh, that death is certain and the time of death is uncertain. So that brings that urgency into this. Yeah, now, now is the moment, today. Bring awareness to this moment. To, to today, bring kindness into this moment, whatever you experience. That's, that's more important. And then slowly, slowly, uh, the, the aspiration to wake up for the benefit of others becomes more and more genuine, it becomes actually the compass in your life. The aspiration is already good, you know, it's, it's very powerful, but slowly, slowly you will find yourself uh, thinking like that, you know, learning the art of rest, learning the art of healing yourself, uh, not just because you want to feel better, but because you want to make a contribution with your life. You do it also for yourself, but there is that vision behind. Yeah? to uh, transform this body into a vessel of bodhicitta, into a vessel of love. Any questions, comments?
So now comes the uh, perfection of meditation, meditative awareness. So that's uh, verse 29. Understanding that emotional reactions are dismantled by insight supported by stillness. Cultivate meditative stability that passes right by the, form, the four formless states. And this is the practice of a bodhisattva. Cultivate meditative stability that passes right by the four formless states. This is the practice of a bodhisattva. So em emotional reactions are dismantled. Yeah? So the, our reactivity is uh, dissolved, dismantled, deconstructed, seen through by insight supported by stillness. So insight supported by stillness, this is the union of shamatha and vipassana meditation. So shamatha practice is the practice of calming down the mind. Here the, the relative practice of calming down the mind. So here this, this stillness is not talking about the silence, the, the mighty silence. That's something else. So this is a, the relative practice of shamatha without with a job object. You know? Initially, often the breath. Yeah? So you calm down the mind, and peace arises. Yeah? Because if you calm down the mind, then you don't have problems at that moment. Because in order to have problems, you need to think about them. So you 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 pay your your attention to one object, and you stay engaged with that object, and your mind is more present, more clear, more calm. But that is not uh, healing or dismantling reactivity. In order to do that, you need to bring vipassana into, into the meditation. Uh, and vipassana here means insight into the three characteristics, anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Yeah. The non-static nature, impermanence, dukkha, the dissatisfactory nature of all our experience, and anatta, the, no, the teachings on no-self. So, with these three insights, uh, combined with a still mind, you dismantle, you deconstruct, you liberate yourself from emotional reactions. This is an important point in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that uh, calming down the mind through shamatha practice is only a provisional piece. So just calming down the mind is not going to liberate you. It's not an awakening practice. So we, we, we need to combine that karma mind uh, with our understanding of emptiness, our understanding of selflessness. We need to combine vipassana and shamatha practice. If you practice vipassana without a calm mind, then it's not very powerful. Yeah? So that's why this combination. It's possible, but it will not go very deep, because you can't really go deep into the nature of things if your mind is not focused. So if you do a breathing meditation and you look into the impermanence of the breath and your mind goes somewhere else, then it can't be very deep, uh, the inside. Yeah. 
So in, in, in more uh, gradual trainings within the Buddhist tradition, like also, for example, in the Guluk tradition, there's a sequence to that. So usually you would start with the shamatha practice, calming down the mind. And then once you have some skills there and you uh, have trained in the nine stages of shamatha, then you would uh, study emptiness and attain an intellectual understanding. And then you would apply that understanding of emptiness in your meditation, in your investigation. Uh, this is uh, um, this is something you know, from a Buddhist point of view. Uh, one would uh, one would maybe criticize other practitioners who have attained deep uh, absorptions. So this is what the four formless states. So the four the four formless states they are meditative absorptions. So. In the Tibetan tradition, they have the system of the nine stages. So in the nine stages, when you have attained shamatha, so that would mean that you are able to stay engaged with the primary meditation objects effortlessly through the, uh, through the, through the whole session. Uh, but then there's even deeper uh, places of calmness, and they are called the four, the four formless stage, or the four dhyanas, or the four absorptions. The Tibetans are not interested in that, because uh, they say, uh, if you have attained the ninth stage of shamatha, that's good enough uh, for awakening. So you don't need to have a more subtle mind. Yeah? So the ninth stage of shamatha is enough to break through. So why bother about the other, more, uh, about the other states? Uh, so and uh, um, so that's what is meant here by Tongba Sanpo. Uh, it, the the union of vipassana and shamatha is more worse than the four formless states. They they are actually seen in the Tibetan tradition as a bit of a sidetrack, an unnecessary sidetrack where people get stuck. So that's what also what some meditative tradition would criticize in others, where uh, a resting in the four formless state is seen as awakening, is seen as enlightenment. I mean, it's the complete bliss, yeah? But you're stuck, you're, you're useless. And the, the potential of the disturbing emotions is not addressed. Yeah? The, 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 the distortion of reality is not addressed through a calm mind. Any questions to that? That was a lot of information. <laughs> it, it takes a few months to uh, to kind of understand. I just gave the headlines now. Yeah, so nine stages of shamatha. Okay, what are they? Yeah, so but uh, you know there's there's teachings on that and trainings. Yeah, and then also. Uh, the whole teachings on emptiness on a rational analytical level and then how to uh, look at your experience with with your understanding of emptiness it's a very beautiful system you know very clear uh, and gradual step by step it's quite amazing and it works yeah it really brings results 
It's just that we need to do it with with our hair on fire. <laughs> because we have this precious we have this precious uh, boat uh, which we don't know how long, and uh, we don't know how long we have access to these teachings and to this experience. Because there's plenty of people still around who, who have done this, yeah? who have actually walked the path and, uh, and who, are uh, and who are proving to us that this works. Yeah? Unfortunately, they can't do it for us. We, we have to do this in the same way they did. The good news is we have more than one life. For this project, so we can relax. We have all the time we need. So that's meditation, and of course, I mean, this is uh, often in this uh, short root text. I mean, we could now spend one year with this with this first, yeah, and and really unpack it, yeah. Uh, so these uh, these texts they are uh, they are very rich. Like a Tibetan master could teach on this text for three years, uh, and uh, and it, it and it wouldn't get boring. You know? So they are a bit of a bouillon of the teachings, and then we need to uh, like a condensation and extraction of the teachings, and then uh, we can unpack them. And we are, we will unpack them in our practice. So and then uh, the last one, uh, that's the sixth perfection, which is wisdom, and wisdom actually is what turns the other far-reaching attitudes into the six parameters. So the six parameters is uh, present in all the other parameters. It makes it is what makes generosity into the parameter of generosity is the sixth parameter, yeah, the wisdom part. With what without wisdom, the five perfection are not enough to attain full awakening. Yeah? So the, the, without wisdom, so without the sixth parameter, the five without the sixth parameter, the five perfections are not enough. Uh, yeah, so wisdom, the wisdom part is the ingredients which makes it a part of awakening. Cultivate wisdom and skill free from the three domains. This is the practice of a bodhisattva. So cultivate wisdom and skill. Wisdom here always means the wisdom of seeing things as they are. So the wisdom of seeing emptiness. Yeah, that's what wisdom is. Uh, skill here um, is um, the other the the five the five first uh, perfections. That's skill uh, and any other skillful methods, yeah, or the other Buddhist practices: generosity, patience, compassion. Um, so also compassion, for example, um, there is that kind of. Uh, dualistic compassion, yeah. So, oh, I'm so compassionate. Uh, there's a poor person uh, suffering, and I'm the compassionate person. And there's a real person, and that person is separate. 
and I have compassion to that person, um, that's not uh, the compassion of the Bodhisattva. Yeah? So that's like common compassion, which is a good thing, but it's not, uh, it's not the, the practice of a Bodhisattva. What makes it a practice of a Bodhisattva is the wisdom ingredient. And the wisdom ingredient means it's free from the three domains. And the three domains refer to recognizing the emptiness of the one who is compassionate, recognizing the emptiness of the compassionate act, and recognizing the emptiness of the person who receives your compassion. All other other kinds of generosity, all other kinds of compassion, they are contaminated. They are contaminated by the narcissistic self-importance. So all other kind of compassion is what Trungpa Rinpoche calls idiot compassion, which is uh, a a bit of a funny term, uh, maybe a little bit too much because I mean, who who would be our society without idiot compassion? Yeah, so we need to uh, we need all the helpless helper. Yeah, otherwise our hospitals wouldn't wouldn't work. Yeah, uh, so if you notice that, and we will, of course, we notice that. Yeah, so uh, in us that kind of uh, kindness or compassion, which is actually. Yeah, contaminated agendas, you know, seeking. It's often a seeking, actually, a seeking love. Uh, uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a hurt in us, and then we become kind. Uh, so it's not coming from from uh, from the fullness of realizing non-separation. So uh, what we are, the, the vision is uh, non-dual compassion. So there's neither someone here, nor is there an act, nor is there the other which needs our compassion. So that's uh, that's wisdom. Cultivate wisdom and skill. So whatever whatever we do in our practice, we bring our understanding of emptiness in it. Yeah? So in our dedication, that would be so we dedicate. Uh, the merit which does not exist uh, to uh, to the to all the other beings which do not exist, uh, so that they maintain, uh, so that they might attain fully awakening which does not exist. Yeah. So when I say now which does not exist, obviously I'm not talking about nihilism. So I need to. I would need to add, which do not exist in the way they appear. Yeah. So which do not exist inherently, solidly, findably. Yeah? But sometimes it's just more funny uh, to say which do not exist. It gives this little, uh, uh, the, the little like, yeah, and that little like. That you know, that's actually what we uh, negate. That's what refute. We, we refute. That's is what. That's the mini I which does not exist. So it brings it out a little.
that kind of marikba, uh, ignorance. So in, in our practice uh, and in our dedications and prayers, it's really helpful, at least on a, uh, on a conceptual level, on, a, on an aspiration level, level to, to add. Uh, the, you know, that's what Lama Sopa always did, does you know, when, when he, when he uh, does a meditation. No? So he always says, okay, we dedicate the merit, which is empty, uh, to, um, to all beings which are empty, so that they might, uh, uh, that they will awaken to full Buddhahood, which is empty. Okay, that was a lot of talking. <laughs> so I hope you are still somewhat connected with your inner weather. So when you leave the session now, And just notice how uh, our meetings today affected you, and so what you take with you. Does it resonate with you for a while? And it's enough. It's only one thing. You know? So then it was worth to to be here. If it, if, it, if you just remember one thing, which which stays with you, like one sentence, one word, one feeling, and then you bring that with you. And chew on it and become familiar with it. And it can be many different things. It can be the certainty of death or rely on silence or uh, so. It's, uh, it's one little thing after another. Then you integrate it more and more. And the next time it will be something else. So you can add something else. <laughs> 